Hello, friends, new and old. Welcome to The Digest Show, brought to you by Black Rectangle Collective. On this week's episode, it's all happening to your two favorite middle brow film enthusiasts as we do our best to avoid the industry of cool, meet up at the record store, and hang out with our friends. Also, on this week's show, we'll be learning how to cook the beef with the sing-along. Oh, the myriad of life lessons that films bring us. Episode 3 is here, and it's yours! Let go! Josh, there's one thing we must avoid at all costs on today's show. We must not become friends with the rock stars. Absolutely. On this episode three of the Digest Show, Josh and I are doing a golden god of a swan dive into 2000's Almost Famous, written and directed by Cameron Crowe. Are you ready? More than almost. Okay. That was okay. Before we get too deep into it, I'd like to ask the uh, listeners to join me on the back of the DVD for an inaugural segment on the Digest show we'd like to call the from the back of the box. So this is, in case you were going to watch the movie after you listen, or it's been 10 years like it was for us, you, you just get a little uh, prep before we start doing our deep dive. So... I literally have the DVD in my hand. I want you to see it. I own this oh, DVD. Yeah. Yes, I bought it when do. I was 15, and it's still laying on the floor of my closet to this day. If that's not a harbinger of things to come on this sh- today's show, I don't know what else is. Oh, so, that's a representation. So we got uh, Roger Ebert making his uh, Digest show debut on the back of the almost famous DVD. Friend we'll get right show. to it. Adored by critics and audiences nationwide, Almost Famous has been hailed as the year's single most entertaining film by Raj. Writer-director Cameron Crowe takes you on a heartfelt journey into the world of rock and roll and this delightful coming-of-age comedy. Interesting. Thank you, Newsweek. It's the opportunity of a lifetime when teenager reporter William Miller lands an assignment from Rolling Stone magazine. Despite the objections of his protective mother, William hits the road with an up-and-coming rock band and finds there's a lot more to write about home, lot more to write home about than the music. This enormously engaging WNBC film boasts superb performances by Golden Globe winner Kate Hudson. This is her lone award, probably her best movie. We'll get to that. Frances McDormand, Billy Crudup, our Lord and Savior Philip Seymour Hoffman, and newcomer Patrick Fugit. 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 Come on. Fugit. Fugit. So this movie is a semi-autobiographical um, tale of Cameron Crowe's experiences as a r- young Rolling Stone writer. Um, and right from the beginning, he's the the intro is him writing out the, um, the cast. That's Cameron Crowe writing it. So it has this personable feel to it, something that makes it immediately um, nostalgic. It's setting the scene to like really get you in the feels. The first time I watched this movie, I was 15 years old, the same age as William Miller, and I was embarrassed. It had been 10 years since I watched this movie, and I was almost embarrassed about how much it has informed who I am and my opinions. And um, do you remember when you first saw this movie or uh, your first impressions of it? You know, I don't remember specifically, but I do know after thinking about it a little bit more recently, I was about, I think I was about 15, 14 or 15, because I remember thinking um, that Patrick was like this, 
like actor as an actor was like my age and it was kind of obviously he wasn't but that's how it felt to me and i felt and he felt older than he actually is in the film because now looking at him he's like a kid yeah he and as an older person as an adult now there's several things that change my perspective of the perspective of the movie but just how young everybody is including the main character um and it really just brought me back to being that old it kind of like uh, confirmed my allegiances to certain music, to Simon and Garfunkel, mm. to the Guess Who, to lesser, like maybe slightly lesser known or less cool, if you will, uh, bands and artists. And cool and real, those are two things that are big themes throughout the movie. Um, let's get right to that. Sure, sure. Yeah. So this kid is. There's a really, it's funny, I mentioned on the back of the DVD, it calls this movie a comedy, which I think is really interesting. It, it is, it does have funny parts to it, for sure. I mean, after the the third watch in the past few weeks, I mean, really on the third watch, the comedy really hit me, like okay. hard. I, I I was surprised at how many times like I did, it wasn't like a full out like like gut laugh, like silly laugh, but it's just really well written. So exactly, the, the pacing is like oh, that, oh it just, yes, it's, it's perfect. Yeah, it is. I mean, I've got like, I mean, if you if you want to talk about that for a minute, I've got like a couple just to rattle off. Yeah, I want to like, talk about the tone of the movie to start it off because we touched on the nostalgic, personal feel. This is like almost like a diary or journalistic uh, reflection of an experience, but there is, and it's obviously romanticized version of of musicianship and artistry in the 70s but there's this comedic thing to it that i think softens the overall tone of the movie that makes it probably the most that's what makes it so endearing probably is is the is those those comedic moments so what do you got on that yeah i mean well that's kind of a two-parter for me because you talk like to kind of throw back to the nostalgia i mean we've only been going into the depot for just a minute i mean i think I mean, it's uh, so obviously it's a period piece, but it's one of the ones that is just it, it's done so well, and and it's 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 like um, effortless is how it feels. That it's like it yeah. almost was filmed when it's supposed to take place. But more importantly, like there's a warmth that's created in the in the film in 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 the lighting and with the camera work, um, and I think also the the innocence on the face of some of the stars of the film there are a lot of close-ups really early and that's when i watched it again this time through for the first time in so long i was like fuck this that kid is super young yeah yeah zoe deschanel is coming out party she looks i think she's 20 years old the same age as kate hudson yeah and it's just it's the youth the youthfulness of this movie like holds up it is and it's uh it, it it makes you like it it makes you want to snuggle up in the movie and i've as a movie lover, my favorite things, and that's one of the things that hit me the hardest about this movie this time, was when you watch it, you just want to, you, oh, God, if I could buy a fucking ticket to live in that world for a couple of weeks. You know, you would just want to go on vacation there and, like, live there for a while, you know? San Diego? Yeah, that sounds nice. <laughs> no, I know what you mean. I mean, this is one of those, there's certain movies, like, when this, when this movie's ending and it's fading to black and the credits are coming, it's one of those movies that I have this little grin on my face. It's one of those movies that makes me want to fall in love. It, you know what I mean? It just puts you yeah. in that, like, that place, that warm, gooey place. 
It does. It does. That, that that's exactly right. It's. I think what we're we're probably dancing around is escapism, even though it's the first time I've really thought about it. Uh, but that I think that's kind of what it is. You just want to go there and be there, and you feel like you did, you know. And it's just this movie does it so well, and yeah. and the and the technical filmmaking too, which. I doubt many people really talk about when they talk about this movie because just the themes and the content of it, but like the yeah. technical, the technical filmmaking is so, it, it's, uh, it's so smooth. It's natural. It feels it just, again, it just, it plays compliment to everything that's going on. And you get just some kudos to Cameron Crowe for, for that work, like alone, you know, if we don't yeah, get to it again. I knew like singles, I knew he wrote uh, Fast Times at Ridgemont High I knew this movie, obviously. I knew that Jerry Maguire is like the big feather in his cap. But like, if you look at this dude's career, by the year 2000, he's made this movie and he was like 15, 16 years old writing for Rolling Stone magazine. It's like, what a interesting life as an artist and writer and maker. Yeah. Really cool. Yeah. So yeah. obviously, he knows what he's doing. Like, um, we're a big fan of original screenplays on this show, I think. And this is another award winning original screenplay. I just, for sure. I, we, can't get, we can't get around that. We just love that shit. Just For true, sure, but true stories. Yeah, no, but so to to go to the second part of your your question, uh, the comedy thing. Like, I'm gonna just if it's cool with you, I'm just gonna rattle a couple off here. Um, so like, I feel like what really works on the comedy level in this movie is it's the timing. It's all the timing of everything that happens. Nothing by itself is like hilarious, but when it happens it like it's just enough to make you smile and your like, mom freaked me out your your mom freaked <laughs> me like out that reoccurring thing yes yeah. yes uh so like man i don't even know what order these are in but uh when she you know, she drops them off at the concert and then she does her little whistle which you hear later when he's talking yeah. to lane and she's like whistle but come to the car and she's like don't take drugs and everybody's like okay hey, brother. Man. you yeah. know and, um and then, like, uh, so Vicky Valancourt, you know, when she's talking to Elaine. Sorry, I'm going to call her that. It's, it's No, I knew that we were going to do that. That's fine. We, yeah, it's going to happen. Just so, in case uh, no one knows what we're talking about, um, her name is Feruza Balk, I believe, is how you pronounce her first name. And she's a very popular late 90s actress, and she plays Starfire, who's one of the Band-Aids. And she's awesome in this movie. Exactly, exactly. She's a great uh, actress. Yeah. She's on the phone with her, and it's it's when she when Elaine says no, it's his mom, and you hear that like exaggerated gulp. gulp. Yeah, I love that. And, edit. and then like a few minutes later, <laughs> she's like running into the wall to tell him this message that his. I mean, it's just there's some things like I mean, um, I've got some hydroponic pot. Uh, I love you. I love you. Yeah. And then, and then, and then Elaine is Francis McDormand, who is amazing in this movie. And she's like, really I not. miss you and I love you. Like, she's like reciting from like a, a poem or something. Right. It's, it's just the juxtaposition of that is great. Um, I mean, so, uh, you know, and then uh, the whole scene where he's on the roof, you know, just the, the timing of, of his announcement of his last words. It's like, it's so there. It's well, like that perfect. scene in particular, like I, <laughs> there's not many, there's, it's kind of, uh, I've done psychedelic drugs in my life. Okay. <laughs> and like a lot Same. of times it's not properly. It, that scene shows what it's really like. He's just stretching the whole time. He's like trying to repeat himself. I love that. That scene. I think it's, Quite, it's so fucking funny. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. And I mean, I know we're gonna get to this whole sequence later. There's no doubt. 
Uh, but you know, the on the airplane ride, <laughs> the, the the timing of I'm gay, and then shake, 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 shake. Everything's fine, and you can just see that he's just like melting inside of himself. Like, oh fuck! If I would have just waited another ten seconds, I could have like, really? you know. And it's just That's it's like all actually about the funny. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um. So like the, the, we kind of agree that the comedic part of it comes from the pace of the movie. This yeah. is a really quick two hours. Um. So oh, the man. the first time we meet Stillwater, the band, is like twenty minutes into the movie. And he's already off and running on this huge journey. Um, and, you know, there's the vocal point at the middle of the film. But the character arcs, everything, it just moves moves so, so quickly. And I'm sure that has something to do with the kind of lifestyle that we're thrown into. Yeah, I mean, and just to comment on what you're, you were saying, I mean, for me, the best movies fly by. And oh, yeah. And the really, really, really good ones, the ones that grab you, feel like they were about as happy like half as long as they actually were. And this movie really, it really was uh, that for me. I mean, it's so strange. When I was younger, like the first time I watched this movie, I really liked it. I, I genuinely did like the movie, but I was held back from being like a super fan because at the age I watched it, I kind of misunderstood the movie and saw it as this movie about Stillwater. Yeah. And I didn't, I didn't really... I didn't really love the music that still, I mean, at that time I'm like a punk rock kind of kid, you know, right. like learning to play green day on my guitar, you know, but yeah. I didn't, I didn't get it. So, but now that's completely different. And this movie hits a lot better now. It's, it's great. So I was obsessed with the movie when I was that old and it was my wheelhouse and it's still my wheelhouse and I love it, but I'd love it for a different reason. And like, I love Stillwater. I thought as a young kid watching it was this, awesome great band and it was like the this glory story of this group and the music was really great and the soundtrack is amazing which i know we're going to get to um but that's one thing that's changed on this rewatch is the that this band is flawed that they're human beings and that this movie isn't about this band at all it's about this guy's this young man's journey to himself really which i know is like a tired old explanation for a storyline but it really is he's he's caught between this fantasy world and glorifying his heroes. And he has these two people on the phone throughout the whole movie. He has his mother checking in on him and he has his correspondence with one Lester Bangs. Um, and that kind of creates the the dichotomy, if you will, in, in the movie, right? Is that how you feel? For sure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And um, I think to, to, if I could add like maybe uh, an addendum to what you said, I think the, Please the, the film is about, to, to me, the film feels like it's about William and his and his family first, and then secondly, it's about William and Penny, mm-hmm. and then and then third, it's about everything that happens in. And it's to, also to about first. music, obviously. Oh, absolutely. I mean this this I mean this film is a I mean this film is like a, a love it's a love letter. Yeah, yeah, I mean it's oh my gosh. It's and so it, like it, it's I, very so, successful in that, like yeah. no doubt. I mean the Hollywood insider that I am, I happen to find Uh-oh. out that <laughs> that like the average uh budget for licensing music and films is like one point five million dollars, I guess, for a a real bona fide Hollywood project is the highest you're going to see. The budget for this movie was almost $4 million for licensing <laughs> the music. No like, doubt. So much good shit. 
Oh, I mean, um, when you when you listen to so the soundtrack is the soundtrack, but when you listen to some uh, someone made a great Spotify playlist that was every song you hear in the film for even for snippets of a time in the background and you listen, it's the whole song, the whole track in order that they appear. And I've been like jamming out to that all day today. And dude, it's, I, I haven't finished it. Yeah. Like for those of yeah. you who don't know me, I get up early. I've been listening to this playlist since five 30 in the morning. Okay. West coast time. And I still haven't finished it yet. And I've only stopped to do this so it's it's long and there's a lot of music in there one of my favorite parts about the the music though is the led zeppelin presence and how it's used as like so i have all right so i picked i picked um give me just a second i picked four of my favorite musical moments in this movie oh hit me so I'm going to go from four to one. So the okay, fourth one like is that. the use of Led Zeppelin interludes. The song, like, he uses That's the Way. Um, like, Led Zeppelin 3 is really prevalent on this film. Mm-hmm. And it's and the way he doesn't give them identity, but more texture in the film, as more transition and interludes, like I said. I, I It's so smart. It shows me that the filmmaker understands the music and the emotional impact it has on you when you hear it. Yes. And and I, I imagine that Led Zeppelin, obviously one of the most popular rock bands of all time, was probably in the background of these people's lives regularly. So oh, for I, it to be in the background of my ears while I'm watching the film, I think it's just a really smart decision, and it works, and it's a beautiful thing. Um, early in the film, I get my number three pick, and that's America by Simon and Garfunkel. I used to get like made fun of for digging on Simon and Garfunkel, and this, like I mentioned earlier, this movie was like, fuck you. Simon Carfunkel are amazing. Oh, that sound. Like, I mean, I and talk also, about nostalgia, beauty, and yeah. Well, obviously, his sister in that moment when the song is playing, his sister is in fact leaving home. And it's just so appropriate. And go ahead, you have a thought on that? Random shout out to the, the person who mixed the sound for this film. Thank you. You're beautiful. I love I believe you. it. One, you, you legitimately made the music in this film stand out and you made it sound like I had dropped a fucking needle on it in my living room. Like, yeah. and I love that. And it's because when you, and that's one of my top ones too. And I, I won't take too much of that time, but like for real, it just, it's so full when, you know, she's carrying her luggage out and you, it just hits man. Like that, that, that song hits for sure. For sure. Absolutely. So, Number two. My number two moment is when they're coming into New York City. And again, it's a Led Zeppelin moment. It's Misty Mountain Hop. And yes. that shit, that organ part is rolling. Yes. And it's the party is on. It's New York City. Like Stillwater, this might be the height of what we see them at in the movie. The vibe is fucking lit. Yeah. And that like makes me want to like be there and party. And I fucking love it. And that you hear that organ kick out on that tune. And it's the streets of New York City, and they're congratulating William on getting laid. And it's just like, it's like, the, I think it's one of the most rock and roll moments in the movie. They're in the back of a limo, like, chiding this young kid about having sex for the first time. And yeah. then the organ on Led Zeppelin kicks in, and Misty Mountain Hop, Led Zeppelin 4, fucking like epic rock and roll shit. I love that moment so much. I mean, something that's going to no doubt come up 
throughout this whole thing is the way that okay, it's it. I mean, it's clear that I you know a lot more about the history of this film and and the way it all happened uh, than I do, no doubt. Um, but it's clear that whatever Cameron Crowe's history was and whatever his biography and whatever, however autobiographical this is, this guy understands the dynamic of a motherfucking rock band. I've lived with one. I've, I've hung out with them. Have you? For like, yeah, I mean, I lived with... I'm just joking. I was uh, trying I, to... I, li I lived with a member of a band and his bandmates... I, I don't know if you met him. He's yourself. And his bandmates would come around and like they would like I think they record I think they recorded a record at my house. Yeah, so we did. We I lived with a band. That's you enough know? about and my band in college. The 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 <laughs> dynamic, like the guy gets the dynamic. I mean, it's it, it's a little bit of a. He understands how to use but, the music in such like an impactful way. And oh it, yeah, it's not just because he's a fan either. It's because he's lived the story, and so he he knows the place that these these tunes need to be. Right. For sure. He, no, for sure. And, and hey, I mean, I don't – I mean, if I can, like, throw a little down the alley here, I mean, the music by – score by Nancy Wilson. Okay, let's get to that after my list. Okay, Because I want to talk about that. No, okay. it's cool. I love it. My bad. Okay, so number one is probably my hottest take on this episode. Son of a bitch. What's it going to be? So I'm a diehard Elton John fan, have been since it wasn't fucking cool, okay? Fucking love that man. <laughs> So there's a song off Mad Men Across the Water, Tiny Dancer, which is like the hit focal point. It's at the middle of the movie, the sing-along scene on the bus. It's almost famous incarnate. It is fucking the point of the movie. I believe it's the second best Elton John moment in the movie. The first is my number one music moment in the film, and that's an Elton John song off a 1973 record called Honky Tonk Chateau, and it's called Mona Lisa's and Mad Hatter's. I believe that that moment when Kate Hudson's character is sees Russell Hammond with his girlfriend and their relationship begins to melt out of the cool world and into the real world, and it begins to fall apart. It leads to her overdosing on quaaludes. It leads to these relationships starting to fracture in a real way for the first time in the movie. And I think it's, I have goosebumps just talking about it. I think it's so well done. That song is beautiful. It's sensitive. It's, it just, it quells just like every, uh, just raw emotion you could feel. And it's done so delicately. And it's at the most pivotal point in the movie, in my opinion. And that's my number one music moment. Period. Full stop. Enough you agree? Said. You agree? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean. I mean, it's crazy because Zeppelin is all over this soundtrack, and Zeppelin close it cl closes, closes the film. Yeah. It's the last three songs you hear are from Led Zeppelin until the credits roll, and it's amazing to me that somehow Elton John fucking owns this soundtrack. To me, I mean, like you said, Tiny Dancer. I mean, like, can we just say how beautiful that is? Because Forget the band dynamic. It's it's about humanity. You every one of us have been in fights and like every everybody I mean, you and I have yelled at each other, like in our over our friendship. Like some of these guys have yelled at each other in this oh, movie. Yeah. And there's nothing like a sing along to a fantastic <laughs> song to just like really cook the beef up and be like, fuck this. Yeah, you said you sent me your notes and you said it cooks the beef. And I've never heard that expression in my life. 
dude. It's our first sidebar of episode three. What That's the hell hilarious. does that mean? Okay, I've never so, heard that. Okay, growing up in the park, you know, like I did, you know, when you had trouble Just with for anyone listening in the Northwest or anywhere else in the world, the park is the trailer park. Yeah, that's the trailer park. The, the, well, the mobile home uh, facility, as you may call it here. Um, no, but <laughs> – okay, so I've got – real sidebar here. I've got, a, I've got a brother who's six years older than me. And uh, so when I was younger, my, my days were spent listening to hip-hop tapes on my grandmother's front porch. And when you had problems with someone in the park, uh, they it, it was called beef. You had beef with one another, and whenever the beef would would dissipate, clearly you had to right you had to clearly you had to cook the beef, or you had to somehow prepare the beef so that people could eat it and get past it. So Tiny Dancer really cooked the beef on this one and like stewed everything so people could get along. That's the point. So it really did. Because Russell Hammond's character in that moment goes off to find the real in Topeka, Kansas, mm. takes a bunch of acid. Uh, I think what he does is he satiates his need to like be wanted by quote unquote normal people, and it kind of alienates his group for the week for the night rather. Comes back on the bus and they have this huge sing along, and it cooks the beef. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's a I huge part of I, I know that that part that scene is like a huge part of the film as a whole, but as far as Russell's arc, I think it's like the beginning of his transformation until the end of the movie. And the song actually resurfaces when Russell comes back into William's room. Uh the musical interlude interlude reappears and I think it's just kind of the end that of we see of Russell's arc. I think that scene is Russell's more than anybody's. But I do have sure. one qualm about that scene. Well, if if well, please go ahead. Uh, right before Kate Hudson, she draws a breath to sing the chorus, mm. except the song isn't on the chorus, and it just really bothers me. Mm, mm. She draws well, a breath to sing the word "hold me close," Tony Danza, but it's not. <laughs> and they cut out the pre-chorus in that song, and that's the best part of the song. I don't mean to be a contrarian and shit on the popular part of the movie, but it's not my favorite part of the movie. Oh man, who's the fucking boss? Okay. Um, well, okay. I want to put a punctuation point on one thing, though. Okay, because we talked about, and this is your list. And I'm gonna give my top three. It's gonna be Do really it. quick. Uh, but Mona Lisa's and Mad Hatters. That's that that moment. I mean, I've been singing that fucking song, me doing too. dishes for weeks now uh, because of this, too. and it's like there's no doubt that one that's top notch. But okay, so my top three. From three to one would be um, when Tommy hits the needle, mm. and and he has his moment. I mean, it just what a great choice for a transformation. Song. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it does, and the, and that whole scene in general. If I could, there's like a quick interlude because that that right when when he puts the needle on that record and has that experience, that's the culmination of that scene, and that's why it's so important to me. But mm -hmm. I just want to say that scene when I watched this at at 30 years old took me back to being 14 years old with my long hair and my big oversized headphones Same. and 
listening to Led Zeppelin in my portable CD player and like falling asleep in my floor in my room after school. And it's like, that's what falling in love with music and with like creativity is right falling there. in love what it with is. anything yeah, yeah. like yeah. healthy or not is obsession and curiosity and just never stopping like this guy loves music so much that he wants his profession to be to write about it he doesn't yeah. just stop at being a fan of the music he wants to follow it yes yeah and and, and- and it's a, it's something that grows, and that scene just like that right. It's a beautiful thing. It's a seed, you know. It's and and like you get to see this like plant start to grow throughout this film, and you know, obviously, if this is autobiographical, like look at the fucking career that this seed turned into. That's awesome, you know. And for whatever extent, you know, the character William and his growth in and of itself is, is and that's a kind of an important moment. Um, but I want to push through mine quick because I really feel like your you yours are like there would have been two of mine would have been two of yours so i'm just gonna go kind of through mine but number two is one way out on the bus yeah by the almond brothers like i just love you use that song it's like so it's like i believe that's intentional i I mean it's gotta be right obviously it's intentional can i explain why i think it's intentional oh please hit me please i think if you had to pick a band to identify stillwater with Stillwater's like a poor man's Almond Brothers. Is that right? I was going to say poor man's Leonard Skinner. Mm. Well, Almond but Brothers were the... like Almond Brothers were like one of the first bands that Cameron Crowe worked with when he was a journalist. Okay. And I believe there are big allusions to Russell Ham- Greg Almond in Russell Hammond's character, the music they're playing in um, William's bedroom. There's this black and white poster of Stillwater lounging around. Uh, uh, carrier cases yeah and yep. it's almost a copy of of this really famous almond brothers album cover of fillmore east that has like the famous live whipping post and memory of elizabeth reed it's this really famous black and white photo and it's almost the exact copy and it's but it's just the members of Stillwater. so i think he's trying to for his own memory connect those two bands Sure, sure. I mean, that was that's funny that you just like go into that because that was one of the things I really wanted to ask you in this was like what historical band do you attach to Stillwater in your mind? Because or, or a combination because of, the, of bands, but Yeah, well, I would say Leonard Skinner and but also something like um Marshall Tucker band or something like I really want to inf- are, you, are you done with your list? Oh, no, I've got one more. Okay. I just really quick. I just want to emphasize that, like, you know what? Finish your list, and then we'll go into that. Real quick. Yeah. Uh, my share, my sherry more. That's that. Have you ever been in love, and you're in love with someone, and they look, they're having a bad time. Yep. They're either in this instance having their stomach pumped, or they've thrown up from drinking too much, or they just don't have makeup on. They look like shit, and you just want to make out with them so hard. Because you love them so much. That's it. That's that moment. That's why. That's, that's it. why. When when you when you took Mona Lisa's and Mad Hatters, I was like, I got mine. That's no doubt. Because they it, hang like, on his they hang on his face for like thirty seconds. Oh, he's a, and then he's completely and then, puppy love. And then on her ankles and on her mm, feet. Squir- a I mean, moment. That's a. I mean, you when you love someone, and you're in there. It's like every part of their body and everything that happens to them is beautiful, and it's yeah. so. It, it's, you know, it, it's it's great. Yeah. No. That's so really, that's, that's mine. Really, I like that. Yeah. 
cool. So just to transition back to the yes. the Stillwater conversation, if I if it were if I didn't know anything about Cameron Crowe's story and how autobiographical this film is, I would I would say Poor Man's Leonard Skinner. Um, but I would say a combination of Almond Brothers and Leonard Skinner, and I want to explain why I used the man the the term uh, Poor Man's mm-hmm. and how it's important for the movie mm-hmm. because this band is a mid level band. And that's mm-hmm. something my perception on the film changed from when I was 15 until when I'm 29. Is that this movie isn't about this isn't this movie isn't glorifying a band about to become huge and famous. No, this is a mid-level band in a shitty bus trying to make it with a crappy manager and bad communication <laughs> skills, a couple of egos. Uh, Jeff Beebe, Jason Lee, dear lord, what a perfect. Love it. Egotistical. You say Love it. He said Muppet. <laughs> Muppet. He does such a good job of like, of characterizing like an egotistical person that has no grounds to be egotistical. In any case, the the this band is human. Like I said earlier, they're they're flawed. They're not about to be the biggest band in the world. Whether or not Russell Hammond is some transcendent genius or not, the band is what they are. And I gotta say, like. The the clothes, the way they carry themselves, Russell Hammond's shoes bother me the whole fucking movie. He's got these boots on, and I'm thinking to myself, would fucking Greg or Dwayne Allman rather be caught dead in like dirty hiking boots? They just nothing about them screams next big thing, other than this kid kissing their ass. Sure, sure, and the fact they're gonna be on the cover of Rolling Stone, but because of that kid. Yeah, I know, but what when you just said about the fact that Russell's shoes bother you through the whole movie, I immediately movie. go, let me just say what everybody else is scared to say. Your looks are becoming a problem. <laughs> That's so fucking on point, dude. So fucking on point. Being in a band is like having three girlfriends, but all three of them are in the room at the same time. Ooh. But they're not like emotionally responsible. They're men, so they don't know how to express themselves, and they bring out jabs that about superficial things at the wrong time, and they don't express themselves in a timely manner in a calm way. Ugh, it's tense. That scene's great. I've been in hairier conversations with bandmates, but that that's a pretty good characterization of what it's like to be in a in an arguing room with a couple of bandmates for sure well see and that okay that scene's got one of the the gold comedy moments too like uh what is it jeff bb's like uh oh really i'm just one of the guys who are out of focus Focus. this this (laughs) t-shirt says everything that you wanted to say exactly it is so great too like okay again having like been friends with people who are in bands for the majority of my life like the t-shirt would be the thing that, that fucking sets off the fucking everything. Yes, it would be like, oh my god, I don't like that t-shirt. That would be the fucking shit right there that would set it all off. And it's so it's so great. That's why I say earlier, he he clearly gets the band dynamic. Like he spent time around touring bands. There's and no the doubt. Thing, the other thing that's really perfect is they keep bringing up that Russell's too good for them. Mm-hmm. And that he's lauding over them that they're gonna, he could leave at any moment. Now, as the viewer, we never see that, right? We never see that from Russell. We see like this searching, humble, sweet. He wants to be great, but he's and he's kind of he's got a dickhead thing. He's obviously sleeping with 
a younger woman and he has a girl like he's not a perfect human being no but, not by any means but his ego is is referenced several times in the film but we don't really see it as much as we see jeff Beebe's. oh no jeff Beebe's ego is far more on display i would say and, I mean, I, and because and i think that the reason that is is because he is better than them and they're insecure about it and so they manufacture this thing that he yeah that's why no for sure like i was i'm glad that like i was lost for a second i thought you were saying that russell feels like he's you know talent more talented than the band he says he can't he can't play everything he can play because he's past them and you i thought you were saying we don't really see any evidence of that throughout the i'm like yeah there's like a few things i can name that like like this dude's like in the hotel like sitting at the piano and the rest of them are only concerned about fucking beer and women. And he's just sitting at the piano playing. And like when they're on the bus, he's playing the guitar and he's like, kind of they're writing songs and it's based off what he's playing. Play it again, man. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it it just, uh, no, he absolutely right. But I will say, I think Jeff Beebe's ego is more on display publicly, but maybe Russell's ego is more on display privately. Like the way I think he, that's probably accurate. The way he treats the two women that he has to interact with. That's what with. I'm saying. His relationships like his relationships with women are horrible. And also the way the motherfucker lies on William at the end of the film. Like let's like like don't get like I was mad as a motherfucker watching Edge, that time. You Come should on. be. Like that's bullshit. I'm sorry. It's really fine. mad about I was hurt too, because that's our it's, boy William. Yes. Like again, when you first cause I I relate to this protagonist because the first time we watched this movie, we're basically this kid's age. Yeah. And you just, you know, you relate. And it's like, fuck this. And he's like, he, again, like, what, what a trip this kid went on, though. Can we just, like, say that? Like, the first night of his professional career, this guy has the kind of night that a lot of us just dream about. Like, he, show, he shows up. He meets these like band-aids and like meets Penny Lane, his like obviously his first love. He meets the band. He gets an interview with them. He wins them over. He gets to go backstage. He huddles with them before the fucking show. I mean, the dude has kind and of an awesome. Forty-five night. minutes go by. <laughs> I mean, yeah. For real. It's, it's, and the fact that he like he his mom has has all this pressure on him. He's young. He's graduating high school early. And then all of a sudden, in a matter of weeks, he's like on tour with a band. Yeah. It's just wild. Well, okay. So something that clicked for me on the third watch that happened for the, the study for this was um, the scene in the car where Elaine tells William how old he is. Yeah. And she's like, you should use those extra years to go do something. Chase your dreams. dreams. And this, do and what this, you love. Okay, exactly. so there's a... There's a parallel between that and Lester Bangs. Sure, there's, hit me. There's almost like a mirror image of Lester Bangs and his mother. They have they're telling him to seek the truth, to not be swayed by bullshit. Uh, it, they're both preaching the same fucking thing. True, true. Yeah, in different language. In different language. Language. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, his mother in Shakespeare, Lester Bangs in. Uh, it's great. That's I one mean, of the small things in the movie I've realized. Uh, there's so many things that I uh, like 
I say things differently because of this movie. And like every third time I say Iggy Pop, I say Iggy Pop, and like I forgot why, and then I remembered why I say it like that. I mean, it's great. I mean, that you know. So no, I I feel you though about about Lester and Elaine like saying kind of the same things. I mean. I feel like Elaine was the the kind of mother that every American household needed in like the post sixties era, but none of us wanted, you know, because what we wound up doing was, you know, playing Atari and watching Star Wars. Uh, but I think that that she was the kind of mother that we all needed. And Lester, I, I obviously I think Lester Bangs, like I feel like we're he was right. I mean, I think we're living in that world now where it's. Oh, he's totally right. It's the, the industry of cool line, you know, like that's what it's become. And it's like whatever is cool, whatever is fashionable is what gets put forward. Um, and, you know, under the surface, you have those artists and bands that are making music and doing it for the right reasons. And people follow them, but they don't get to they don't get the, the main stage anymore. Like it's very rare. Yeah, I think Lester Banks has the two most important quotes in the movie. Um, and they they also end up being true not only in our time now but in the film for William's character. He's like in the scene in the diner. <laughs> also, another thing that I forgot why I repeated it, but it's I used to do a little speed. I used to do speed, a little cough syrup. I would say like a little with cough the hand syrup. <laughs> yeah, with the hand so tilt. So oh. little side note: he was only there for a few days and sick as shit with the flu. Uh, Philip Seymour right? Hoffman while he was filming. That's 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 funny. But yeah, I think it's what's that? Well, now that I hear that, that actually kind of makes sense a little bit. Yeah. But one so, of my favorite moments, if I can just point out really quick, is right after what you just said about the cough syrup, and it's one of those comedy moments. And Lester's like, I can't just stand around here talking to my many fans. My many day. fans. Cut to them eating yeah i love it together it's like yeah so do you want to get some food because i don't have any friends because i'm not right exactly (laughs) so he tells them so william tells lester uh, that he has his ambitions for becoming a rock star or a, a, a rock critic rather and this is before he gets the gig but he says it all sounds great but they are not your friends these people who want you to write sanctimonious stories about the genius of rock stars, and they will ruin rock and roll and strangle everything we love about it. And by the end of the movie, when Russell comes to meet William in his room, he's A, asking for forgiveness because he fucked up, because he he stained William's vision and, and dream and dirtied it up and fucked it up, and B, because he's wrong, because Lester is right. Russell was wrong and Lester was right mm-hmm. that they were sitting on their mighty throne. They were searching for glory and fame and praise and not what they said they were doing, which was for the fans, man. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, it like when you say that, the thing that comes to mind from Russell is when they're, I can't remember which city it's in, but it's when they're listening to simple man by the pool. And he's like, just make us look cool. Oh, it's in, on the Sunset Strip. Yeah, I mean, it's like just make us look cool, and it's like that, it's also that... indicative of the fact that he strings this kid along the whole tour, that he can't make half an hour for him to get an interview, when yeah. he absolutely can, and he doesn't want to because he doesn't want to get. He probably a doesn't take William seriously, and b doesn't want to get to the truth of the matter because the truth of the matter is he's a superficial person. 
Absolutely. Yeah. And and what is it, Jeff BB saying? And, that, and that's another thing is like Jeff BB. What, yeah. Jeff BB. I'm saying, only the fucking lead singer. <laughs> I'm only the what Jeff BB when when William first goes backstage with them, Jeff BB's talking to him and he's he's talking about how it's not about the money that rock and roll is like here I am and fuck you if you don't get me, you know, and so then why are you telling a reporter just make me look cool? And then why later are you yelling about coming off as an amateur or as a dick? It's like clearly you missed the fucking point. It is about the money and it is about the popularity for you. And if it wasn't, you wouldn't be doing this. And that's kind of fucking buzz. He loses his thought, and when he's trying to first explain what he does to William, he loses his train of thought because he's jerking himself off, and William has to fill the void, fill the blank, rather, and says, the buzz. He's like, yes, the fucking buzz. And later, when William tells the true story, they're all like, I didn't say that. Like you said, we sound like amateurs. Absolutely. I mean, that's that was to me, I, okay, Russell completely shit on Penny Lane. You know, that happened. But the moment when he was laying on the bench and he sits up and he's like, I didn't say that, uh, that that's just some that's just some like real sick shit. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that that's like you're you're you are lost inside your own head at that point. And that it makes you really dislike Russell. And it's like I'm also very happy that Penny doesn't give him another fucking chance at the end of this shit. You know, like, fuck that noise. How cool is how she handles that? It's great. It's great. So Penny, the thing that I picked up on as an adult watching it was like, to be frank with you, if I met Penny Lane in real life, I would be really annoyed by her. Sure. And how she, she has a fake name. She's talking about Morocco. She develops this character and she, uh, like one of her, uh, contemporaries tells her don't let too many men fall in love with you she's kind of floating in between this real world and this cool world and um but she also takes care of people yeah like she picks up all these strays as she goes along she generally cares about william she calls russell her last project and she and i think that she refers to him as a project as she loves music so much she is a fan She's trying to give him greatness that he can achieve. And I think her swan song, her last move as Russell as her project is diverting him to William, not only to repent for his mistakes that he's made, but because that's the truest place he can be. When he gets that interview that he's been avoiding for two hours, he's, he has this look on his face and he says, why do you love music? And he says, to begin with mm. everything, which is the yeah. truest thing he says the whole movie. It is. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, that's a, that's a valid point, and like to begin with, also is Stillwater's first record, which is a little Easter egg. <laughs> to begin with, uh huh. Oh, that is an Easter egg. Um, so what? I, where I was gonna go was while we're on the topic of Penny Lane, let's go ahead and discuss the fact that for me, the best performance of this movie is no doubt. The fact that Kate Hudson's only second to Philip Seymour Hoffman. And that's only because Philip Seymour Hoffman is literally the best actor in every movie he's ever been in. But besides that, Kate Hudson here, folks, like 
Come on. And I think the thing, my hot take on Kate Hudson, okay? I don't know if anyone's ever said this, but I think Kate Hudson had the best performance of this fucking movie. Like, I don't... I don't I mean, think I'm there's not, any question that that's true. I mean, I, and, and also, it makes me think, like, okay, so the best moment of her acting, they're a couple. One... At the very beginning of the movie, when she first meets William, and they have that scene where they're like, let's talk about our age, and it goes down the ladder a million times. When she hits 16, her face drops. That scene is so interesting to me. It, it drops. And I think, and at first I was concerned with, is she 16? And that may be true. But I think what her face is dropping with, what the moment is trying to convey, is the illusion of the truth. That yes. she will play the game to the end. To not yes. be found out and be held yeah. accountable, really. Yeah. But, but she doesn't also, do it. Go ahead. She also, tr- she also trusts William enough to tell him. I mean, <clears throat> I believe. Yeah, she that's loves that guy. Question. I don't yeah, trust. That, I, don't, I don't know if that's true, what she, she tells him. I don't trust her. Sure. Um, but back to, let's get to, from Penny Lane to Kate Hudson. The best moment of acting for me is the moment right after William tells her about the bet at the poker game. Yes. That I mean, so William may, maybe I'm just a male sap here for a for a no. female actor crying, but like this I mean, that's a that is a crazy fucking snapback. Like she goes from this optimistic to like crash and then that moment with the hand when she moves her hair and you can you you can it's almost man. feel the feeling in your chest because we've all had that feeling where you're choking the tears back. I found myself you're... saying that so many times throughout this movie. I know exactly how that person feels about For heartache sure. and loss, but but because there's some... at the core this is a coming of age film True. and we can all hit that. In the vein of that and the scene that you're talking about, there are we referenced earlier Elaine, his mom, Lester Bangs are telling him how it is, are trying to like shake him out of this dream world, which he deserves to be in as a young man. But he has these two moments where he does the same thing for Penny and for Russell. And the time he does it for Penny is in that scene. He says, wake up. They sold you for 50 bucks and a case of beer. Yeah. Like, wake up. Don't yeah. go to New York. Don't do it. And she shouldn't have gone to New York. And the other time is when when he's with Russell, his whole relationship with Russell is a full arc until Russell understanding that he needs to respect the love that William has. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and I think, yeah, you you know, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, just say that. I don't, I don't know. I don't know how to say what I'm trying to say. That's why I'm like stumbling right now, but in fact, like now I'm off the train. Hit me with what you were just saying. Come on, real quick, synopsis, real fast. William reciprocates the experience he has with the two leaders in his life, Lester Bangs and his mother, of trying to, quote-unquote, keep it real or keep it honest, be true to himself, not be swayed by what is cool. And he reciprocates that to Penny Lane in the instance where he reveals to her that they sold her for 50 bucks in a case of beer and to Russell Hammond that he's full of shit and he shit on somebody that only respected and loved him and he got nothing in return yes and my point my what i was trying to say is that scene 
really wraps the fact that we love William up in a bow. We love William. We love William. Yes. And I, and I love he, William. His mother has raised him right. Can I just say real quick, tiny little side note, on the platform that I was able to watch this film in preparation, uh, the uh, the back of the box, if you will, for for that platform, yeah, was was basically um, about Frances McDormand, Elaine, and her <laughs> drives a wedge between her children because she has this fear of rock and roll. It was all about Elaine. I was like, what? Like, that's kind of weird. So sidebar, I just found that kind of odd that that was where they put the synopsis of the movie was. Wait, about where did Elaine you read that? Ch- On Prime. It said that? That yeah, so I had to rent the movie to watch it. Uh, yeah, I bought it. Well, I basically yeah, I mean, so anyway, yeah, it showed that was the synopsis. Like Elaine, uh, uh, a college professor um with her fear of rock and roll music, sex and drugs drives a wedge between her and her two children, comma Anita and William. And that was it. That was it. Can you legit. imagine if that was the movie? <laughs> like, it sounds like a like, turn of the century Nathaniel Hawthorne fucking shit. If they, she wouldn't have done... Guess what happens at the end of the movie? Her two kids come home, and they're oh, so yes. happy to be home. Yes, absolutely, they are. And, and like, and if I can just... Because you just said that, I have to say, that scene where William has just lost his virginity... His editor has called him, and is he's a little rattled, and he's going to try to get this interview, and he's carrying this fucking laundry for these broads, and he's like, "What the fuck ever," and he well that first before you, there, yeah. this moment that moment is meant to like they're treating him like men treat women. Sure. Don't forget to get the laundry. I think that in itself is a really, and he has he's like, "You don't respect me. What am I to you?" I think that's really funny. That's a valuable point. Like, no yeah. joke. Like, I, I, I did not think about that. And I think if I can be completely honest, the reason I didn't think about that is because I do 100% of the laundry in my household. I wash, yeah. dry, and fold clothes every week. So I didn't actually think about that. But I just was thinking about really my point is when he throws the laundry down, he sits down in the chair, and he starts to cry. And I just know that oh, feeling. William. Just like you said earlier, oh. so many times you like you're like I oh. feel that. It's like all he wants is his mom, and his fucking bed. First he wants his bed, then he wants his mom. And I'm just that's just that's just the fucking truth for the guy. That's it. Yeah. That's what he wants. Did you know his? I read his voice dropped during the middle of filming. What a weird predicament to be. Is that when they filmed the the Ben Fong Torres scene? <laughs> this is William. Yes, yes, this is William. The voice of God. <laughs> the accidental pause after the $700 to get it to a grand. $1,000. Cuz he's like the dude says $700 and he's, he's like, like my he's never heard that much money in his life, right? Yeah, and he's like he is speechless. It's not like he's not cool with it. He's just speechless and the guy's like, "Okay, 1,000." <laughs> That's great. Uh, Did you have a question to ask me about Lester Bangs? I do have a question to ask you about. So, okay, again, it has been, like, for me, it's been, like, 12 or 15 years since I've seen this movie. I really think I only watched it once or twice about a year after it came out. Um, And I hadn't seen it since then. And I was re-watching it, and, like, 
right in the opening credits, just like strolling over his shit, and there's like the word Lester Bangs. And I'm like, I pause the movie, and I'm like, I Google Lester Bangs, and I'm like, what the fuck? What is this? And I'm like, American rock critic. And I'm like, out loud, I say to myself, Chase, that sneaky fuck. Like, what a sneaky little fucker. And some context for those of you listening, like, Chase obviously uh, was and maybe is in a band, but was in a band, and I lived with him, and that was the band that I lived with that recorded a record in my home. And one uh, on one of their records that they recorded, there's a song called Lester Bangs, and it happens to be one of my favorite songs. And I'm watching this movie, like, for the first time since I've met Chase, and I see this and I Google it. And I'm like, you sneaky fuck. And I'm like, what the hell's going on? So I actually have not been able to ask this question, but I want to know, like, even if it wasn't you, can you just tell me what the story is behind the name of the song? And like, I mean, because it's a badass song. So it's like a big raucous, like, rock and roll number. It's on the on the record that it's on. It's the fastest and the loudest and, and all that. And I it was the working title for the song. And I had carte blanche on what the end title would be. And I just thought, and I love that movie so much, as much as I love records and music, honestly. And that character described, informed my opinion on the doors for like a decade. Mine and, too. Oh my God, mine too. I stole that line from me too. for like 10 I, that years. That was my like impromptu response to the doors for like seven fucking years. He's a fucking drunk who thinks he's drunk, a poet. Fuck that guy. And I just thought, fuck it, like, I like that character in that movie because he was direct and powerful and harsh and colorful, and that's what the song is. So it just, and none of my bandmates, I don't think, knew what the fuck it was referencing. It just sound. it also just sounds cool. It's just a good name. It does, but, it does. Yeah. I was like, I, I, I just, I don't even know what weird meaning I had prescribed to that song yeah, what did you think name? i don't know i really don't know i really don't know i just thought it was like i mean because that again okay you guys he funny? said it's the fastest hey, loudest song on the record that's why it's my favorite again grew up a punk rock kid that is my favorite song and i'm like i just Isn't thought it was like funny? lester bangs like bang, Isn't that bang, funny bang. how rock and roll can make nonsense seem like magic yes yes mm. that's mm, that's a line right there mm. That's apropos for the movie. Line of the week, folks. Well, it's line of the week. This movie is about. I I, I really think this movie is about the, the coming of age thing and filtering through a, an illusion. It, I mean, it is, and like while we're talking about Lester Bangs, I mean, some of the stuff that he says, like one of my favorite lines of his is right at the very beginning when we first meet him, and he's in the. Uh, the radio station and he's talking to the the dj and he's telling her he says uh true music accuses you and i'm like oh give art, me art. that ask something exactly of yeah. true art and music is art and true art fucking accuses you it accuses you of not knowing yourself good enough it accuses you of why can't you not... answer this question about how you feel Yes, yes, 
it, true art puts a mirror in front of you and says, stare Absolutely. at me for hours, motherfucker, until you under you understand every nuance. That's the thing. And and I love that line. I love that line. And the fact that that came from Cameron Crowe is beautiful. And, and unless, I will say, unless he did some historical shit and, like, pulled that from, like, a review or something that well, he did actually have a correspondence with Lester Banks. That I was, was going to say, thing. which would not surprise me, but I, I just want to bring up one thing. I, this podcast is brought to you by the black rectangle collective, which is an artist collective that Josh is uh, in charge of. And I've been writing uh, pieces for it periodically over the last few months. And I wrote about my personal love affair with my own era of music. And I referred to it as meeting my friends and Penny Lane. In fact, says that when things get hairy, go to the record store and hang and and hang out with your friends. And I just and that really struck a chord with me to describe music in that way where it's what do your what do your good friends do? You know? They they ask the most of you. And Lester Banks says the only true currency in this world is what you share with someone, a friend, when you're uncool. When you're at your lowest fucking point, your most elemental po- point, what do you want to do? Be with your truest friends and be asked, how can I be better? And that's what music and art does and should do, or what great art and music does. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, not much more to say. Well, what I will say is that not only do you just do a good job of summing up Lester um, and his thoughts, but... He was let go from Rolling Stone for, quote-unquote... Uh, criticizing musicians too harshly. Well, did you look at? Okay, so I did. And one, he, I did one deep dive. I did one. I didn't go on the internet for this at all. I only literally watched this movie. I looked up the IMDb page and I looked up the soundtrack. Those were the only things I did, except for one thing. I got curious at the section when at toward the end of the movie when he gets a call from Rolling Stone and he says this is Jan Werner winner winner maybe I'm not real sure real quick real quick yeah that man the actual man is in the cab in the Mona Lisa and Matt Hatter scene when William's looking for uh, Penny Lane and all the cabs okay. and that, that aerial montage okay. and he's credited as I think legend or something like that because Cameron Crowe token. he obviously used to work for him back in the day anyway go on yeah so I did one deep dive and I look into this because I just wanted to know, it was like, you know, I mean, is this the guy I wanted to know, is this the person who founded Rolling Stone? Like it was a few years after Rolling Stone started. I knew that in 73. So I just went, he says, I'm the editor. So I was like, is this the guy who founded Rolling Stone? So I look it up and one of the first things, you know, me and you both are fans of the Wikipedia page. Um, and so I'm looking it up and one of the tabs on Wikipedia is controversy. And it's like, let, let's folks let's just go ahead and say if you have a tab on your wikipedia page called controversy, controversy. you clearly have had a few of them right yeah, it's not just one yeah it's not just one so it turns out this dude fired he fired a reviewer a writer for rolling stones a rolling stone in like rolling stones excuse me uh in in the late '90s, because the person wrote a negative review of Hootie and the Blowfish, and so the the review gets published, and the day after the review, uh, 
he the the writer goes on like a radio show or some shit and gives an interview and the guy the person's asking him like you know you got fired for this is this guy like a fan of Hootie and the Blowfish or something and the and the writer's remark was uh Jan Jan's a fan of any band that sells 8 million records and that's when it was like culture industry the industry of cool and it's like that made me kind of point because like growing up rolling stone was like this magazine of record like oh my god rolling stones 100 greatest guitarists like that's yeah the gospel rolling stones 50 greatest rock and roll records of all time that's the gospel you know that's the definitive list and it's like eh, maybe uh lester it- was right about you it's Guess really what? just to make money per and usual, it's commercial. Lester was right. Lester was right. Exactly. That's the takeaway from the film, folks. Lester was right. Lester was right. So I just found that a bit interesting. And and I, I looked into that, and there were more things. He he has a long history of doing uh, si- not silencing or censoring. That's those are harsh words in today's terms, but of uh, muffling voices that are saying things that don't necessarily gel with the bottom line of the magazine, you know? Yeah, totally. So, so I, th- I found that interesting because the magazine in itself grows to not be about the fans. It goes to be about the glory. Which sure. Is what these bands are grappling with. Well, and that's another thing. If I can just, okay. Lester's always right. The way this dude... That's the name of my next single, everyone. Look out I, for it this Christmas. I don't think there's a better a better title that could be had. Um, when William calls Lester, and he says, the editor's going to call me, and he, he's going to want to know about what's going on. And Lester tells him, tell him it's a think piece. They'll wet themselves. And then he goes, in the... Uh, in the harsh reality or the harsh face of stardom it's like that's so great it's it, then and, and the editor eats it up he loves like, it with a spoon and then later when they're denying the story jeff bb says we sound like we're amateurs struggling to deal with impending stardom yep yep <laughs> so so what lester anticipated was right what lent what lester anticipated for the the band's actual journey was correct what he anticipated for the editor's reaction was correct he was right all around he was and okay he, I got he probably two... could have chosen that the rock stars wouldn't like it so don't be friends with famous people don't 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 fucking be and again and that okay three things now first thing the absolute dichotomy between real world and the circus if you will or the world where it's all happening you oh, know, God, whatever, whatever world you want to call it, but there's yeah. a definitely a dichotomy. But also, one of my favorite, favorite Lester moments is when at the end of the film, there aren't many, by the way. He's ta- there's not, there's he's not, not in this movie a lot. And also, let me just say, okay, folks, 
Kate Hudson has the best performance in this movie. I Yeah, you tried to make some joke earlier, and I just it, didn't like it. She's well, amazing. She's magical, man. Okay, well, fuck you, okay? Because Philip Seymour Hoffman is the best actor in any movie he's ever been. I will live by those words, okay? Where I'm going is I have a framed portrait of Philip Seymour Hoffman by my front door. This guy is my favorite actor. Who do I have a framed portrait of in my bedroom? Fucking Elton John. It's awesome. <laughs> it's fucking awesome. Awesome! It was glorious when I saw that, okay? I've had that for years. It's fucking glorious. But Kate Hudson has the best performance, there's no doubt. Absolutely. It's special, man. But one of my favorite moments is when Lester Bangs, is at the, toward the end of the film, he goes, what are you listening to? And William says, still water. And he just hangs up the fucking phone. He's like, kids on drugs. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Oh. What's the other line you love where he says, I'm what are you doing? What are you doing? I'm at home. I'm oh, always at home. I'm uncool. It. I'm uncool. I'm always at home. I'm uncool. And the, the way he said I'm uncool. The only true currency in this world is what you share with someone when you're uncool. Don't get caught up in the hype. That's basically don't. what he's saying. It Just is. Don't. It it's it's and it's something like it's funny i had a conversation with someone dear to me recently about this when i was younger i um like po pre-college age i was like a class clown like in fact you know i got that little thing in the yearbook class clown i was a class clown um and that's what i needed to like the bring to the table to people like that was the thing that i brought to the table yeah but I hit college and I started studying art and art. What happened is you hit college and met me and your life changed. Well, yeah. I mean, it was, it was, <laughs> no, I mean, dude, come on. That, that time in my life was mega pivotal, but, but like 12 months before that, you know, I started studying art and art became the thing I brought to the table and I kind of sure. dropped the, the funny and this, I mean, I think, William and this whole film and Lester in particular talks about people who love art because that's what at the core I'm going to go back to that a million times in this podcast over the over the years but to me like again music is art like it's its own sub thing but but people who love art uh live for it that's what you do you just that's that's your thing it's just what it is and it's not about recognition it's not about like like it's everything that Jeff Beebe says at the beginning of the movie. It's not about money. It's not about popularity. It's about here I am and fuck you if you don't get it. That's what it is about. But it's so funny to watch that character dissolve from that over the course of the film. You know, totally. the thing that's different about music or that sets itself apart for me personally as an art form is that a painting can't hang in the background of a pivotal moment in your life and be the soundtrack of something. And it replays on several different mediums, whether it be the radio, another playlist, some random experience, and it always brings you back to that special moment. And I think that that is what Cameron Crowe really understands in this movie and is his biggest achievement, is making music this malleable device to put you in a nostalgic place and make you understand how the characters are feeling. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 it makes the, it makes the viewers feel 
part of the world that the film is in. Yeah. And he does it. Like I said, like it almost feels silly to say how amazing the use of music in this film is, which is basically what you're talking about. But I will to just to add a little bit of, you know, a, a smidge of debate to the conversation. I will say, I mean, I hear what you're saying, but what, what I'm trying to articulate is that music is a medium of yeah. art. And all the mediums of art have their own unique characteristics. Oh, I wasn't trying art to put that visual a, art. No, no, I, 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 but I just wanted to, I wanted to kind of get that out there. Like, I feel like you, I, I feel like music is art. It's a medium of art, and it does have that unique characteristic. But what the reason I wanted to come back to that is not about offense of putting down visual art, just because that's what I do. But it's more about saying. Art, art, just in general. Art I think people should use the word art in respect to music more often. I agree. That's what I'm getting at. Same thing with literature. Same thing with poetry. Same thing with filmmaking. Like, these are art forms, folks, and we should yes. art can What are you art. trying to say? What are you asking of the people who are taking in what you make? Sure. And I think that, that this movie really poses that question in a, be in a beautiful way. Because it, it tags does. along these super fans. There's a contingency of young women, a young man pulled from suburbia because they trust it and they're following it like this lantern in the night, this like green light across the bay where Great Gatsby fucking reference. There we go. Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, but it's it's so good. To f the, the, the reason this movie feels so fucking fantastic is because for those of us, whether you are an artist or you are an artist sympathizer, or you are the partner of an artist, or you just fucking love art, whatever it may be, uh, this movie is, it shows you the inside of it all. It sh and, and it does, just like you said, it, it kind of shows with Lester in particular, through the, 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 the contrast between Lester's voice and the voice of the band coming into William's mind, it kind of shows you what pure art is about. You know, it, 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 it's about the, it's, it's about doing it. It's about making it. It's about being it. It's, it's not about getting 1400 likes, you know, it's not about selling a million records because again, like I said at the beginning of this thing, I think some of the best bands today uh, don't sell millions of records. They don't. Some of the best bands making music today don't sell millions of records. They don't. I think a big message of this film is to strive to be genuine and even when you falter, that's okay. And to be in love in a fault-filled manner is okay because you learn how to be more genuine. I think that the coming-of-age essence of this film with the William character and even... I, just, I, I love Penny Lane's arc too, how she really, mm. she's from the same town as him. Mm -hmm. Like that's something that was again, a theme that I keep bringing up. I didn't really register when I loved the film when I was younger, that her and William lived miles away from each other before they met, that she is also a young person, you know, blindly following this lifestyle and this love of music and creating. And I think that's a big part of the message of the film. Like I said, that, as long as you're honest in your devotion to whatever you do, that's that's okay. That's and you right. Can make, and you can make mistakes, and you can make people fall in love with you, or you can uh, say no to a, an interview for six weeks. But 
as long as you understand the process, I think this movie is about process. That, mm-hmm. that, that that's okay. That your journey is 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 a journey. You're not going to be right all the time, you know. Mm-hmm. And I and I I think that's a big part of this film. Yeah, agreed. Absolutely agreed. And and it one of the things that kind of jumped out at me is like I often I know this is kind of off. To, I mean, that's okay. Do it. A little off topic, but one of the things I often wondered in my life was why the Beatles never toured. Like why? Why? Like they did a little bit, and and we've we you and I have had this conversation over years as of friendship. But there there are reasons, and you've articulated them before. But watching this movie, um, kind of made me understand a little bit more why they probably didn't tour. Like that seems like an incredibly taxing life to be on the road like that. Well, Mick Jagger sure as hell not going to be doing it at 50, right? Right. Oh, that was one of the beautiful <laughs> moments. Of, and, and that, okay, and if I can tell you, that right there is why fucking art and rock and roll and creativity wins over capitalism every fucking time because you guys think one thing, but if you got the fire burning in you, brother, that shit does not go away. It doesn't go away. I mean, granted, Mick Jagger makes a shit ton of money every time he goes out there and shakes his old ass on stage, but yeah, granted, you know, um, but no, I just think I do think that it's a. I just love this movie. I mean, I, I was really again like I, it's one of my favorite movies of all time. I would put it top five, easy, perhaps even top four or three for me personally, just because the wheelhouse, the music is so good, um, the cultural references, the 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 writing is honest and original and the the comedy we talked about how it's natural and it's 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 almost like tailor made for my sensibility so and it, I loved it when I was fifteen and I love it at twenty nine so it's it's a personal favorite for sure I mean I like it better I mean I like it better now a hundred percent I mean I just, I just do I mean I enjoyed it when I first watched it but watching it now I like it much better I mean it just it um i don't know it just hits i mean it's like it's so i mean and plus like there are it's one of those movies too cuz there are a lot of like really famous people in this movie that are famous like super famous now i want to talk maybe, about that for just a minute they go for it yeah what do you got i, I think even so contributors on the film and almost castings of the film it's just a super inter- interesting subject so like so uh, nancy wilson of heart yes. is Cameron Crowe's ex-wife and at the time wife, musical curator of the film, uh, consultant, writer of Fever Dog, the big uh, Stillwater tune that's featured in the movie. Peter Frampton taught, um, what's the actor's name that played Russell? Billy Crudup. Hat gave him guitar lessons, not just how to play, but how to move and and appear as if he knew what he was doing. He also plays. Humble Pie's stage or uh, stu- uh, tour manager in the mm-hmm. poker scene. Mm-hmm. He's very involved in this movie. Mike McCready from Pearl Jam plays all the guitar on the Stillwater soundtrack. <laughs> Brad motherfucking Pitt was the first choice I to know. play Russell, uh, Russell Brand. That's hilarious. To play Russell Hammond. Yeah. And his quote on why he backed out was, I just didn't get it enough to do it well. He just didn't get it. How lucky are we that one of the most popular actors of our time just didn't get it? 
Can you imagine this movie with Brad Pitt? It would be... uh, About Brad Pitt. It would be very... Yeah, it would be And it it wouldn't be the same fucking thing. No, no. I went and looked at uh, other actresses who uh, auditioned for Penny Lane, and I found this one paragraph in this list of trivia, and it was Brittany Murphy, Mina Savari, Anne Heche, Nev Campbell... This is on IMDb, I'm pretty sure. Laura Flynn Boyle, Natalie Portman, Catherine Heigl, all these late 90s, early 2000s people. And I was like, wow, all this list of people. And then I scrolled down a little more, and there were two more paragraphs that were like, the list of people who applied for this role. (laughs) This is just one of those roles in the industry, I think, that everyone wanted to get. And there's this hype over who's going to get it. And that these, like, half of these people probably didn't audition for the role of Penny Lane, but. Kate Hudson got it, and we're lucky that she did because I could I could probably imagine a number of different people in this role, but her genuine a, a performance is the the best part of the movie. It's the reason she's on the cover of the DVD. It's the reason that it's on the poster. She just embodies the the free spirit nature that we're analyzing in the film. She, oh, she turns it out. There's no doubt. Yeah, she she, rocks. she she completely shows up. I mean, you know, but like. One thing I will say is, can we just also say, let, let's just imagine a world, right, where... Imagine a world. Where Almost Famous with, let's just not say starring, because that's uh, yeah, it's reaching, okay? But let's say with Jimmy Fallon, Rain Wilson, and Nick Swardson. Rain Wilson, Nick Swartzen, and Mark Marin are all in this fucking movie. Mark Maron and Stone Jimmy Street. Fallon. Eric Don't... Stone Street from Modern Family is in this movie. Yes. I mean, could you you could like seriously just okay, so you said uh uh Mark Marin, who is the other guy from Modern Family? I'm not familiar with him. Eric Stone Never Street is the larger gentleman. Yes, I got you. Larger, so, I'll be a talent. Mark Marin, Jimmy Fallon. Rain Wilson and Nick Swartzen all in this movie. You could literally cast and like completely produce a whole movie with just those guys in it, and it would probably do perfectly fucking well. But but they're in there, you know. So it's uh, I just find that that's one of the the that's the, one of the funny parts about this movie is doing it, it's seeing so many famous people in it, and like oh, Nick Swartzen, all he does is scream, "It's Bowie!" Yeah, and, and Eric Stone Street has one line. Mark Marin just screams like, "Shut the gate!" Yeah, and evidently he uses that on his podcast as like an intro. <laughs> like, there's so many like Vicky Valancourt in this movie. Yeah. Zoe Deschanel has her debut, Anna really, Paquin. right? Yeah, Anna Paquin, great. It it's and Jason Lee, like popular, like I think he was a pro skater. I think that's how he got his start, and then he was in like Mallrats, Kevin. Mm-hmm. Um, what's his face? What's the director? Why do I think of him when I talk Kevin about Smith. Kevin Smith? Oh, because we were Jay and Silent Bob for Halloween that one year. We were, and we, by the way, guys, we won. Uh, we first. also left before we won because we, we were cool. We won, <laughs> but we left before we won. So it makes it even more cool. But the point was is that we just went home so we could be uncool. Ooh. Oh! Hot take! So the ebb and flow of Hollywood through this movie and the the auditions and the cameos and the what ifs and the almost famouses of this movie make it really a complete experience as you're watching it and see those famous people. Absolutely. I, I mean, for me, the one thing that I, I think the, 
the punctuation for me on this movie is the fact that this movie is so nostalgic and it's so wild because it's like the movie takes place in a time that I was not even fucking born in, which I, I've never really quite wrapped my head around the psychology of like feeling nostalgic about things that you weren't even alive for. But this movie just, I mean, it makes things, it, it just, it just makes you want to live there. It makes you want to be there. It makes you want to sit in on that furniture and be at that party or be at that show. And it's not a lot of movies that, that do that to you. You know, there's just, I think that there's not a lot of movies that do it in a, in an authentic way. And it's, it's, it's romanticized, but also is real and it makes you want to be there, but it's also attainable. And I think that there are some things that are timeless is that striving to find the truth an identity search and i think almost famous is a timeless film because it encapsulates all of those journeys of young people of artists of a really romanticized time in the 70s and the music which is obviously just paramount in experiencing this film yeah yeah it is it's it's and it's a testament to to it's a te- it's really it's just a testament to rock and roll and the life of the like late 60s and early to mid 70s and the music and the scene and and it's just uh, it was honest man like it was it was had faults the movement had faults the music had faults the people obviously had faults but the search for great art was true and i think this movie is a love letter to that end accomplishment for sure Absolutely. So last thing I have to say is yes, sir. it's all happening, man. It's all happening. Yeah, my potty break is happening. <laughs> yeah, it's all happening. And that's what this movie is about. It's the reoccurring phrase that I think six characters say is just the experience of life and how beautiful it is and how hard it can be. And I, if you put a badass soundtrack to it, a beautiful, burgeoning, talented actress and a accomplished story storyteller in hollywood with his first real shot at telling a true story about himself i think that you get this film yeah you can feel it feel feel the homegrown yeah feel it for sure all right well i think we're gonna lighten things up even more next time am i not right i think so i'm gonna get a little laughter going sounds good well buddy i will talk to you next time and um it's been one goddamn hell of a show yes sir I'm almost ready to be done. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. As we alluded to at the end of this show, the next one is going to be a comedy. And I think what we decided on is going to surprise you, but hopefully delight you. Please do us a favor. If you have a moment, give us a like and or follow on Spotify and or Apple Podcasts. But most importantly, be safe and be kind. See you all next time.